I want to invite your attention to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. In our Sunday night messages, we've been looking at a series on the times when John addressed the little children. Little children need to know. This is the last one in the book. Uh, John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, and verse 21. It's real simple. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Right up front, something stands out about this passage. This is not something we ask God to do for us. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now granted, whatever we do of a spiritual nature requires the help and assistance of God. We're going to have to have the work of God, the help of God to do anything that would be good or godly. We understand that. And yet still, we have this very, very clear instruction. Keep yourselves from idols. It's a choice we have to make. We can make it in the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, but it is a choice we have to make. Keep yourselves from idols. What's an idol? Well, an idol is a physical manifestation of a false god. Plain, simple, a physical manifestation of a false god is an idol. I say the false God because the true God only took one physical form. That's Jesus Christ. He is, the Bible says, the the image of the invisible God. That's Jesus Christ. When the invisible God became visible, that was Jesus. In the Old Testament, we refer to that theologically as a theophany. And that was when God assumed a physical form in the Old Testament. Most frequent one of all was the Jehovah angel. The angel of the Lord is almost always translated in your Bibles. When you see that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. That is the angel of Jehovah, the Jehovah angel. And almost always that angel of the Lord, the Jehovah angel. Yeah, that was a theophany. It was a manifestation, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, physical form. Burning bush, yeah. Anytime God took on a visible form, that is the work of God the Son. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was the theophany. But once God assumed that body, a human body, Now glorified, he's kept it. And so the only manifestation of God that there is, is Jesus Christ in our world that can be seen, that is there. I mean, we have God the Holy Spirit, obviously he can be felt, uh, he can uh, move in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, It is the work of the Holy Spirit that accomplishes The attribute of God we call His omnipresence. How can God be present everywhere at the same time? That's the Holy Spirit's work. How can we say that God then is on a throne in heaven? Well, that's God the Father. That's that's His work. 
It doesn't always work. And anytime we start trying to de- describe God in human language, uh, we run out of words real quick. But it can be said, and it has been said many times, that you know what we know of God, the intellectual part of us, uh, that's God the Father. What we feel of God or sense of God, that's God the Holy Spirit. That's His work and what we feel, what, what we see. That's the work of God the Son. Uh, that, that's just a way that we try to put those two together, the, the, those three together, the three in one. And, and I will admit very, very plainly, very, very admittedly, I'll admit that's a, a limited way of looking at things, a limited way of describing it. So when we talk about a physical form of a false god, let's understand that any physical manifestation of a god is of a false god. Because the only real physical manifestation of God is Jesus Christ. Oh, but I've got a friend and they keep a crucifix all the time. They got that image of Jesus on there. You need to listen to me. Oh, they've got a statue of the saints up there. It's a statue of St. Peter. A statue of Saint, uh, uh, here's, uh, there's the Virgin Mary. It doesn't matter if it's an image, a, a physical manifestation, even of, they say, this is what God looks like. This is Jesus. Well, this is one of the saints, one of the apostles. If we're bowing down to it, or not us, but if people are bowing down to those things, then that is at its core idolatry. They have made a physical manifestation of a false God. God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. End of story. We think of idols as an image chiseled out of stone or molded from clay, carved from wood, or fashioned from a precious metal. And that is indeed a big part of it. Idolatry. Notice what Paul said in Acts 17, 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands. As though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. That is a declarative statement Paul made. After he had told the people of Mars Hill in Athens, by the way, you are in all things too religious. He was surrounded by idolatry. He saw the whole city given to idolatry. And he confronted that. He did it in a nice way. But in a very firm way, God made the world and everything in it and is Lord of heaven. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. All of these things you've made for Him, no, God exceeds all that. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands. That is, we don't make images of Him to worship. It's not our hands and the work of our hands. We're the work of God. It's not the other way around. 
by far. So there was part of that. And certainly a part of the description of idolatry would include those things that are made with men's hands. Chiseled, formed, fashioned out of clay, molded, uh, poured into an image uh, uh, made of silver or gold. I mean, there's limitless almost forms of idolatry in the world. But then there's this one, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Romans chapter 1, of course, very powerful passage of Scripture. Uh, the word creature in that passage refers to the creation. They worshiped and served. And you notice that word, Worship and served. Put those two things together. Worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator. And the manifestation of the worship of creation is all over our planet today. It is some of the most popular form of, of religions that are in existence now. And it always has been. Uh, it takes on the form of animism, for example. And animism, uh, you're, familiar, you're familiar with because of our own country and the Native Americans and their uh, prominent form of worship, uh, where they worshiped the great spirit, but then there was the spirit of the moon, the spirit of the sun, the spirit of the earth, Mother Earth, the trees, the animals, all were considered to have spirits and they could commune with those spirits. That is the doctrine or the belief of animism. Very, very prevalent form of idolatry. Where we worship the creation, all created things, rather than the creator. But there are those who literally worship the creation. So that uh, a cow, for example... In some cultures, is worshipped as a god. I can understand maybe where they get that, but I'll be honest with you. I've never figured out why they worship snakes and frogs. That one. But when you think about it, cats. Oh, I don't care for cats. But when you think about it, one is as good as the other. Insects, bugs, beetles, roaches, rats. I could go on. It's not just the nice animals, but all kinds of them. They worship these things as deities. Yes. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Now, Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 1 because man is inexcusable in this. And he says it very plainly in Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to go through all that tonight. Y'all can read that on your own. But in Romans chapter 1, uh, mankind is held, inex or, uh, this is inexcusable. They are held to be without excuse. Why? Because when you look at this created universe, it obviously has a creator. The fingerprints of our Creator are everywhere. They're on everything. 
life does not spontaneously uh, uh, present itself or manufacture itself. Animate objects do not come from inanimate objects. Some inanimate object like a rock does not somehow transform itself into an animate object. No matter how many times we watch the Transformer series on TV. Yeah, I watch the cartoons too. Yes, I do. No matter. Sorry. A rock is never going to transform itself into an alive, animated being. It can't do it. Life does not work that way. And the very existence of life, in fact, is presented in Scripture as light to mankind. In Him, Jesus Christ is life. And that life, then, is the light of the world, the light of humanity. The very existence of life, the very fact that we can look at a person in a mirror is telling us something about our Creator God. Paul would say in this passage, quoting from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 1, that the manifestation of this is everywhere. It speaks every language. That is, the heavens are declaring the glory of God constantly and continually. And it does it every day and every night. And it does it in every language. There's a lot of things that are universal to mankind. A laugh is the same in any language. A tear is the same. A sob is the same in any language. The glory of God is the same in any language. All over the world. There is evidence that this is a created universe. And the very fact that we can look at this then was a serious, serious matter. Held account, people then held accountable before God. It is an inexcusable error for man to look at a beetle of all things, a frog or a snake, and say that that is our God. It's an inexcusable error for man to think that God is like animals or can be represented in figures or images made by the hands of men. God is not worshipped by human craftsmanship. Then it goes further. I'm doing this for you tonight so you'd understand that we're not immune from the influence of idolatry. It is everywhere in our world. Right now. It is everywhere in our world. All around us. It's a practice of idolatry. Very real. Still going on. Still happening. Practiced by billions of people on this planet today. Idolatry. Then there's also the possibility that people would actually make the creation as a whole their God. Uh, This is the rather blatant deification of the universe that is going on. Mother Earth, as people worship the universe and consider uh, the universe as the all-powerful something that makes everything the universe. Whether it's the New Age stuff that Shirley MacLaine made famous or the Scientology that Tom Cruise made famous, Or the Hinduism that claims to have its origin, literally, this is a direct quote from the state of India, from the nation of India's website, that Hinduism actually traces its origin to the beginning of time. 
Long before there was any other religion, there was Hinduism. And the chief way that Hinduism then was practiced, and according to their article, was yoga. Yoga. They defined it in this way. As per yogic scriptures, the practice of yoga leads to the union of individual consciousness with that of the universal consciousness, capital U, capital C, the universe, deified. Then a religious structure put in place so that it's linked to that universal consciousness. The sign of the, of the zodiac you may not know. <laughs> I don't take anything for granted. Most of you know, but in case you don't, yeah, the signs of the zodiac, yeah, that's idolatry. Yeah. Bottom line, top to bottom, every one of them. You say, what sign are you, Brother Rich? Well, I was born in April. So according to the teachings of, of the zodiac symbol, I'm, I'm an Aries, whatever that means. But guess what? Aries was a god of war. Be careful. What's that mean? It don't mean nothing, but there's a lot. Forgive my South Arkansas coming out, but it don't mean nothing. Uh, it does mean something. Uh, because all of this stuff was idolatry. All sorts of pagan festivals. When we just celebrated Cupid's birthday, better known as St. Valentine's Day. Paganism is taught in schools. Plays portraying it are fully allowed almost anywhere. And if anybody ever raises a voice against it saying, you know, if they're not going to allow Christianity in school, we ought not be cutting out figures of Cupid. Then you're just branded an old prude. I've been called an old prude. I never thought I'd be called an old prude. I never thought I'd be called old. <laughs> Whatever. Against it all, I just read the words of our text. Little children, keep yourselves from idolatry. Uh, keep yourself from idolatry. And let's add in another passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. Run. Run from idolatry. Now, these were the last words of John's epistle. He offered them without comment or, con or, or commentary at all, nothing. But Paul gives a more extended discussion where he says basically the same thing. There's not anything really all that much different from keep yourself from idols to flee from idolatry. It's telling us the same thing. This is something we've got to stay away from, get away from. Don't fool with it. Don't stay around where it's going on. Get away from it. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idolatry. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, then, Paul gives a more extended discussion. I want you to look at it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. We'll put it up on the board. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partaking of that one bread, Observe Israel after the flesh, or are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So as he gives us that command then, flee from idolatry, 
he gives several reasons, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10, as to why we should do it. And the first one is, is because idolatry is inconsistent with our fellowship, our communion. Specifically, the manifestation of that communion, uh, which is the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which, he ble- which we bless, that is the cup in the Lord's Supper. Um, now, we have multiple cups when we do that, when we take the Lord's Supper. But it's the principle that he's talking about there. It's not just the one cup, although Jesus apparently used one. Um, but when we, we, we bless that cup and we pray over it every time we take the Lord's Supper. And then he says then that we have the fellowship with the blood of Christ. Now, <clears throat> the shedding of blood in this sense, if, if a man dies bloodily, if a person dies bloodily in Scripture, they consider that to be a violent death. And uh, so the very fact that there was shedding of blood, there's bloodshed. Even today, we talk of that as violence and violent death. Uh, blood is running, bloodshed. We, we know about this. It's a, it's a practice of violence. So when we're talking about the blood of Jesus, what the Bible is bringing to our attention in that is the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we are commemorating His death. We are, as long as you do this, you are showing His death until He comes. And so we are remembering then that blood of Jesus Christ points us to the death of Jesus Christ. And it was His death then that paid the price for your sins and for mine. It was His sacrifice, His violent, bloody death. That was required to redeem the sins of the world. When we then are sharing in or fellowshipping with the death of Jesus Christ, that is inconsistent with idolatry. He would also bring up the bread, the sharing in the body of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Well, we though many are one bread and one body. Now, we break the bread when we observe the Lord's Supper, but you know something about the body of Christ. When he died, not a bone of him was broken. Not a bit. So why do we break the loaf? Why do we break the bread? And and why is it sent out to us then in pieces the way that it is? Because it emphasizes the fact that we are all sharing in that same thing. And what is it? The body of Jesus Christ. We've all then shared in that. We've all fellowshiped in that. We're all a part of Him. We are all in Christ. Christ is in us all. If you're redeemed. So here we are in the fellowship, the sharing commemorating the death of Christ and the fellowship and the sharing in that one bread of which we all partake. And it all emphasizes then the body of Jesus Christ. And then he brings up another example. Verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So there's another aspect of it. He brings up that Old Testament sacrificial system. 
And that is when people would bring that animal like we talked about and offer it as an offering unto God, the priest then would take a portion of that and they would consume that. Sometimes there were some offerings in even that the people would take a part of and it was considered then, here's this person who was giving the offering. They were giving that offering, but there's the priest then who is partaking of that, God who is partaking of it, so that not only is there that fellowship with God, but there's that communion between the priest and the people, those who offered something on the altar and then those who ate of it. There was they were fellowshipping one with another. And so in all of these things, Paul is, is making a, an appeal to them to stay away from idolatry because it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent, first of all, with our fellowship with God. That's number one. With our fellowship with Jesus Christ, we take the Lord's cup. We take the Lord, that one bread, and we are fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. But we also, just like the people in the Old Testament, we are also fellowshipping with one another. We come together as a church family, as the people of God, and we partake of this together. And both of these things are completely inconsistent then with what happens in pagan feasts and celebrations. Some years ago, I was involved in uh, going uh, to the people on Tana Island. And um, I found very quickly that the people at, at, on Tana uh, were, had dangerously joined uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ uh, with the teachings of their native animistic religion. The personification of that religion was a, a guy named John Frum. You can look that up on the internet. They still have John Frum cults on Tana Island. Um, when I walked into a church there on that island, and this, by the way, was called a Missionary Baptist Church, the first thing I noticed is they had a totem pole in the middle of the building. Not making this up. Totem pole. Being who I am, I just ask them, what in the world is that doing in this church? And they explained to me, well, you know, this is John, and this represents John, and this represents Jesus. Well, I know who John the Baptist was to those people. That was John from. That's what they were talking about. They had Jesus and John at the top and two roads coming, and down at the bottom then those roads came together. And what they were saying, what that totem was saying, this is the place where these two roads meet. That was custom, their native animistic religion, and Jesus Christ, and they've come together here. This is the place where we've put them together. It was a mess. It was a mess. Those people walked around carrying machetes. And by the way, uh, the, 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 the old men could still talk about when they used to kill their enemies and eat them. And I saw the place where they cooked their bodies and the skulls are still in the trees. That's, uh, this was a tough place. You know what I preached to them people? 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just telling you, this is a real thing. It's still going on. We're still fighting this battle. And I told them, you can fellowship with Jesus Christ, or you can fellowship out here with your idols. You can go in here and worship God, the Heavenly Father, or you can go out there under your trees and worship your earthly fathers. 
that I had to tell them that those two things are inconsistent. You can do one or the other, but you can't be both. You can be a Christian, or you can be an animist, but you can't be both. It's going to be one or the other. I remember a giant of a man. He was way taller than me. I looked up to him big and broader than me. I saw him walk out of that service crying. It's a shame for anybody to see him cry, but he was crying. And I went up to him. I said, Brother, you okay? And he said, this is hard. I was asking him and telling him he was going to have to turn away from everything his father had taught him. Everything his grandfather, his great-great-grandfather. Everything that's passed down. All of their culture. It was all right there. It was built around animism. And I was calling them to turn away from it. <laughs> but there was more power there than me. It's the power of the Spirit of God. That was blessing the truth of the Word of God as it's preached. I wish I could tell you it ended happily. I can't. I can tell you that a hurricane came along and blew that church and the totem pole down, and it is no more. They've already burned it up. It's gone. God has a way of dealing with things. But here they are, the cup, the bread, the altar, telling them, Paul's making it very plain, that our Christian faith is completely incompatible with what goes on in the pagan temples and the pagan worship. They could be one or the other, but they can't be both. Flee from idolatry. Why? Because it's inconsistent with our faith. Number two, flee from idolatry because it is infested with demons. Verse 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. I'm not going to preach all this tonight. I preached it to, to, to you a few years ago when we went back through 1 Corinthians. And I know most of you remember that. I just hit the high points for you tonight. Many of you weren't here then and some of you don't remember. <laughs> Paul was saying very plainly that... Idolatry and demonism go together. Wherever idolatry flourishes, the demonic also flourishes. Demonic world flourishes as well. You talk to any missionary serving a country where idolatry is rampant, and they'll tell you demon possession still goes on. They'll tell you work of demons is very real. Uh, there's a darkness wherever that is. It's a darkness that can be felt. It's real, it's powerful, it's tangible. You can literally almost feel the demonic opposition. Paul says it very plainly. When people are making sacrifices to these idols, whatever they are, I'm not going to tell you that they're not going to get something out of it. They may. I'm not going to tell you that they won't feel something. They may not going to tell you that they don't see something done, some manifestation, something that happens. They may. I'm not going to tell you the statue may not start bleeding. It might. But what I am going to tell you is that whatever is going on in idolatry is demonic. It is not of God. 
How do I know that? Go back to point number one. What is idolatry? It is a physical manifestation of a false god. It has to be a false god because the true God has only one physical form and His name is Jesus. Anything else, anything else is a false god and it is infested with demons. Demons love to see people bowing down to sticks and stones and images. They love it. Because they know that they're deceived and that they're wide open for deception and control. Wherever idolatry flourishes, then horrible, horrible things happen to people. Their value of themselves as humans, as people, is gone. Because you see, what gives us our intrinsic value is that we are created in the image of God. But idolatry takes that all away. And therefore all kinds of evil is practiced wherever idolatry flourishes, especially of a sexual nature. It just flourishes in that environment of idolatry. So we flee from idolatry because it's inconsistent with our fellowship. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ and our fellowship with one another. It is infested with the demonic. That alone is enough to say stay away from it then idolatry invites God's judgment. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Do we really think that considering everything God has said about idolatry and everything that God has done to combat idolatry, do we really think that since His first commandment told us, have no other gods before me, do we really think that we can meddle with idolatry? And not bring upon ourselves the judgment of God. It's a dangerous thing. Are we stronger than God? Are we going to go buy us a little statue and put it up on our mantle? Well, you know, it don't mean nothing. God's okay with it. Flee from idolatry. I know, folks, every time I preach on this, you know, folks uh, look at me kind of funny. Well, you know, I've got one of them crystals out in my yard. Uh, Take your crystal down and put up a sign that says, Join me at Faith Missionary Baptist Church. (laughs) Okay. Oh, but that that crystal, it's just pretty. We need to look at things a little more. Uh, Back when I was a teenager, Buddha was real popular. After all, the Buddhists, the Beatles love Buddha. And uh, I didn't know what Buddha was. I had no idea, but I found one of them little green statues and I brought it home and I thought my deacon daddy was going to have a fit. (laughs) Get that thing out of my house. We don't have that here. If you got a statue of Buddha at home, get rid of it. Well, not have it. And I'm not just telling you that. Well, our preacher says this. Don't you go away saying, well, my preacher says, uh-uh. What I've told you is what the Word of God says. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't put your idols, don't put idols in your house. Don't put them in front of your kids. Explain to them what it is. Try 
to do your best to draw a line, stay away from it. Why? Because the Bible says so. The Bible says so. And it does so, as I hope you understand tonight, for a very, very good reason. It's our time now to remind us all, everyone here, those watching from home, that there is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. There's only one way that we can have sins forgiven, only one way that we can be delivered from the power of sin and the plague of sin, and that's through the death of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it had your name on it. He died for your sins. He died for mine. And he gives out the message, whosoever believeth on him, that's on Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you've been looking for something to worship. Maybe you've been looking to yourself. You're worshiping and serving the creation. Oh, we've got to save the planet. There is something worth saving. That's the souls of men. That's what Jesus died for. Save people. And He will save you if you'll ask Him.